My name is Aditya Prakash, and you're listening to A Search for Identity and Beauty, an isolation podcast. I've always felt other. This is a phrase I resonate with many times. I was born in America, but since I started going to school from kindergarten itself, I was always the brown kid at school. When I went to India to study Carnatic music, I was always the American boy at music class. At school, I get made fun of for having an Indian accent, even though I clearly don't have one. <laughs> In India, my music friends would tease me for my American accent, even though I don't really sing with one. And at that age, the sense of not belonging anywhere, it felt like a minor annoyance and sometimes lighthearted and the butt of jokes just the usual experience of growing up. But as I think about it now, that kind of othering, which is seemingly harmless, it is traumatic. And it isn't something that just goes with time. It seeped deep into my consciousness, and it stayed with me. This search for seeking acceptance and a search for my authentic identity became the guiding force behind everything I did, particularly music. I tried fitting in by joining the Madrigal singing group in high school, and believe it or not, it was kind of the cool thing to do in my high school. Then I tried out for school musicals, and I even landed the role of Beast in Beauty and the Beast. I also got some cool points from my high school friends for missing months of school to tour with Ravi Shankar, performing at places like the Hollywood Bowl and Carnegie Hall. So I did start feeling some sort of validation and acceptance on my American side, but I was still always the brown kid. The search for a deep, honest connection in my identity, which I saw through music, felt incomplete. The time I felt a deeper and honest connection, an honest bridge between my identities, was when I went to UCLA for my ethnomusicology degree. And this is where I met my bandmates and my best friends, and we started Aditya Prakash Ensemble in 2010. I finally felt my voice had an honest space that sat between the various Indian styles of music that I grew up with, along with jazz through the brilliance of my bandmates. And this felt like a truly authentic identity to me. Both India and America came together in one sound, and I felt like I had a community with my bandmates. So my band was doing well. We were invited to tour India in 2015. And I was happy because I got to bring my American identity to India, a place where I felt like I had to mute my American side in order to seek validation for my Indian side. I know this sounds very complex, but stay with me here. So in India, what my experience of India at least, it was a place where the social etiquette of my Carnatic learning was steeped in a religious upper caste conservatism, a place where I had to say I didn't eat meat where I didn't drink alcohol because that isn't something that Carnatic musicians do or talk about openly, at least. There's a sort of piousness that I felt pressured into playing into. And a lot of those misnomers have started to change today, but I'm talking about back then and early 2000s. It was never an honest side to my identity, but I did it for the love of Carnatic music. So I put on what was expected of me to be a chamatapayin, or a good boy, as they say in Tamil. 
To bring my band to India was special. I got to bring and show off my unapologetically American side, and I got to share with my American friends an authentic Indian experience, according to me. We were on a six-city tour. It was called the New Parks Festival, and the touring circuit featured one musical act, which was us, one dance, and one theater. As I recollect this tour now, more than the actual shows with my band, it was the person who I met on that tour who was touring his own dance production that went on to change my artistic journey to this day. Well, not only just me, but my sister, Mike Lee, too. That person who was on that tour with me was Akram Khan. And Mike Lee would rave about him. But at that time, I didn't show much interest no more because dance was another world. And I was in the music world, and I didn't think I would grow from knowing more about dance. And that's the real arrogance of musicians sometimes. But of course, now I realize so much of my music and my musical choices is impacted by my childhood exposure to dance through my mom and my sister and now Akram Bhai, as I call him. Bhai is a, a word for elder brother in Hindi. So I went to watch Akram Bhai's show multiple times during that tour, and I was just blown away every time. Although I knew he was known for bridging his artistic identities of Kathak and contemporary dance, I watched his production and I didn't see either of either of those forms. I didn't think of Indian and Western. There was no Kathak or contemporary. I was just in the presence of powerful art that communicated beyond categories. And ultimately that erasure of genre was what I was seeking with my music. And I saw an artist who had just shown me that this could be done through art. I wanted to know how he did it. I wanted to pick his genius brain. I invited him to one of our concerts and he came to the concert and I asked him for his feedback. The feedback after that performance in 2015 was the beginning of an important self-reflective process that eventually culminated in my album today, Isolation. He asked me questions that nobody has ever asked me. He interrogated aspects of music that I didn't think needed interrogation that I took for granted. A year went by and I got an invite from Akram Bai to be the singer of his final solo, Zenos. And since then, he's included me in many projects of his, and each of them have allowed me to, to find a space, to find a deeper connection, a deeper sense of my identity in my artistic journey. I knew I needed his mentorship on my album that I started working on towards the beginning of the pandemic. So I sent him the first draft of my album, Lockdown and Loaded, which is what Isolation was initially titled. He and Vincenzo Lamagna, a brilliant composer for Zenos, and also a mentor on this album, had a call with me to discuss what I, what I sent them. And they completely ripped up the album in, in a kind way, but it was also honest and brutal. Most of the tracks, they just come in. Yeah. Like the layering. I, I and I never felt that you, there's really deep thought. I, 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 yeah. What I miss generally in the overall album is a real sense of conviction in what you believe in or trying to convey. I felt like, oh my God, where do I even start with this feedback? I, I essentially knew I had to start my album again from the beginning. It was one of the most important calls and feedback sessions I'd ever had. This tearing down, ripping apart of Lockdown and Loaded, gave way for the rebuilding of isolation.
So after I sat with that feedback for a few months, I reapproached my new album, and things changed, even with the feedback I got from him. And this music that I just heard today, mm-hmm. let me just be very frank with you and honest with you. Yes. I think uh, you found your voice. What? Wow. Yeah, 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 for sure. You found your voice. Uh, you make me feel the narrative rather than show me the narrative, which you were doing before. You were always trying to be somehow... They uh, push me to have more conviction and trust in my voice, my identity, and me. Finding a sense of connection to my identity has been a constant theme in my work. And when I watch Akram Khan's work, there was never an apologetic sense of needing to explain who he is or what he does. And I wondered if he always felt that conviction. So I'm going to bring you over to the conversation I had with him, where I started with a question I've been wanting to ask him. Do you ever feel out of place, both personally and artistically, in the worlds that you inhabit, Kathak and contemporary dance? Um, I've always felt other. Um, when I'm at home, I'm a son. When I leave the door, I'm a brown Asian boy. When I go to school, I'm a brown Asian boy who is a bit weird because he doesn't talk. When I go to cut the class, I'm a Bangladeshi brown Asian boy who the origin of Kathak isn't from Bangladesh. <laughs> When I go to contemporary dance, I'm a brown Asian boy who has Kathak experience, um, but is not um, from the contemporary world who started late in contemporary dance. The Kathak world never embraced me. Um, They're only embracing me now because they've seen a pathway that's possible. I can't take credit for that pathway. It happened by people pushing me away. And that's the beautiful thing about it. Um, it's how you deal with being shut out. You can either stop. It's like falling. You either stay there or you get back up again mm. and find another way around. And so my nature has always been to trip up because people are always tripping me up. Um, most places, I would say contemporary world accepted me. It's the first time I felt at home. So I can't say everywhere um, didn't accept me. But it's it's the unacceptance, it's the not accepting me is the reason I'm here today. I owe it to them. I say, I talk a lot about my mother, very little about my father who passed away recently. But I owe so much to my father after the rage that I have towards him passed with him. And I started to see that it's everything he said to me um, that tripped me up constantly, that made me who I am today. It's just who are, who are you? Who am I? How are you going to deal with that? On the one side, your father is telling you, you're worth nothing. You will never be amount to nothing as a daily mantra. Until the age of 18, I would say, until I got to university every day without failure whisper it on the or shout it on the other side other ear my mother is whispering those who say things like that say it because they fear what you may become 
the possibilities of what you could become. We talk a lot about decolonizing our choices as non-Western artists. And when, when our primary audience is primarily from the West and, and we want them to engage and connect with our work, how do you navigate wanting to be understood without being explanatory? Without being explanatory? Yeah, like, we, like in, in the classical intensive, we talked about how the idea of wanting to explain everything we do is such a colonial thing. Yeah, because it's a it's a it's a way of apologizing. Apologizing, yeah. Because there's so many um, uh, 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 metaphors within the work that we do right. that they may not. It might just go over their heads. Right. Yeah. Um, I think if I have a conviction in what I'm doing, it will be universal. People will come into it differently. Um, but there's there's a a deep sense of if you have a deep sense of conviction um your audience has to be you that's it mm. it can't be for a white person or for a brown person or for a black person it has to be for you you are your audience mm. what is it that moves you what is it that triggers you what is it that inspires you that provokes you shocks you um For me, if there's a thousand seats, there's a thousand me in the audience. Um, and if you have a conviction in that, then there's the possibility that it may affect others, not in a superficial way, but in a much deeper way. But if you're talking about being successful, how do I re relate to people mass people then that's not something i can answer um i didn't do anything other than imagine that i was in the audience mm. when i started to understand that there is a um, power play happening with critics and myself between critics and myself where when i became really metaphoric especially when i'm tackling hindu mythology the Western critics just couldn't handle it. So they just called it, the man doesn't know what he's doing. It's a confusing message. And it's a confusing message because I'm not telling the story in the way they need to be told, which is basically what they're saying is, which they're not saying verbally, the, the message underneath what they've written, their critique is, hey, I'm the important one. <laughs> I'm the Westerner, the white person. You are performing for me in my country. Don't make me feel like a fool. Explain it to me. A to Z. A, B, C, D, go in that order. That's what I expect from you. But it's okay for other white artists to do metaphor. Because perhaps those metaphors are steeped in Western mythology, not Indian mythology. Witnessing 
your process and the conviction you had in your work, the idea that you are the audience, that has, because I think with me before, um, I think you've seen that change. A lot of it was, yeah, I, I did want the success. I did want, I, I was thinking about what I should do, not what I had to do. And I think the mm. process of this album was realizing what I had to say as an artist was mm. my mm. deep truth. And yeah, that I really owe that a lot to you. I mean, no, but I, I feel like um, uh, there's some things that you, th you know, you were just saying that you changed it, but there's some things you don't change. Uh um, your idiosyncrasies, like you know, you wear the most um, absurd socks. <laughs> absurd socks is the moment you take your shoes off and you come into the studio. You and Vince, we like our no. socks. Oh my god, so colorful! And um, I need sunglasses. You, you have to want it. <laughs> And what was the actual tempo that you want? Really? So I can buy, I wanted to know what does beauty mean to you? It's a, it's a, um, a formula that is given to you. If I said to my child when they were born that something that everybody else considers ugly, but I say this is beautiful, and everything around that as that child grows up starts to, be, uh, starts to hear that this is beautiful, even if it's ugly to the rest of the world, they will believe that is beautiful. So it's the formula that you feed. It's mm. the, it's the uh, parameters that you set My other mentor, T.M. Krishna, would say beauty, at least a superficial idea of it, is a reiteration of a habit. And this is dangerous. This kind of beauty keeps us in our own ego-filled, egocentric world, where what we find beautiful or appealing is only what we're constantly fed and what we're comfortable with. And this reminds me of a phrase Akram Bhai would tell me often. He would say, be careful with beauty. It can be dangerous. You, you had mentioned danger of beauty, and I, I, I come back to a time when I, I was sending you songs that I was working on for the album, and the song Maya, you said, the music sounds beautiful. And I remember I was like, yes, okay, Akrambai said this, and I, I felt like so excited. And then it was like a dot, 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 you paused, and you said, don't fall into that trap. Be careful. Beauty is dangerous. So what did you mean? What, what is the danger in beauty? Beauty um, can be organized. You can set up beauty like an image that we created, you know, that we create before the photographer or the cameraman takes the film or the image. You set it up. It's man-made, human-made, sorry. The other kind of beauty is the beauty that you, you don't see that the humans made it. What I mean by that, if I see the craft, if I see your process in the music, that for me is not the kind of beauty I'm interested in. I said that that's that's 
this the one where I see your process. As I said the other day, uh, some actors put their processes on their chest, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. If I see the process, or I see the system, or I see the structure, then um, that for me is the beauty that you have to be careful of, because it doesn't go deep. It stays in my response is more heady. Mm. But when I don't see the beauty and I feel the beauty. And I don't know why it's beautiful and I can't put it into words. It hits you. It, it, it goes into you. It processes through a very different channel to, through my guts, hmm. to my guts. And then it filters upwards and then you go and then you start putting words into it. And then that, those words become sentences and then you can describe what that feeling was hmm. of that beauty. Yeah, this sounds more like the type of beauty that isn't curated. It's not like perfect and it's not manicured, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's the um, the imperfections, the mm. idiosyncrasies. That, for me, is the most beautiful thing. Yeah. There is a... I feel one has to understand or respect that there is a real profound um, learning in trying to achieve perfection. It's so important um, that I want to achieve perfection. That journey is super important. Otherwise, you will never master technic technical stuff. Um, but your final goal is not that. Your primary goal is that, but not your final goal. Your final goal is to let go. The closer you get to perfection, the more you start to let go of that being the final goal. You know, if somebody says, uh, you must try to achieve perfection, and you can, that's not being honest. You can't achieve can. perfection, yeah. right? But you must try to achieve perfection. It's the trying, it's the attempt. The attempt, the trying, is the doing. Mm. For me, it's about turning up. If you turn up every day, you will improve. Um, but you have to have a reason to turn up. You want to turn up because you want to achieve something. What do you want to achieve? You have a goal. That goal, that is trying to achieve a sense of perfection. Mm. So that standards are high. Um, but high in the sense that you will never reach it. Um, Kumi Behen, for example, was the exact opposite and really shocked me when I was young. He's, she said the exact opposite of what all the other gurus said to me. She said, no, um, there's no such thing as perfection. Uh, perfect. You can't be perfect. Actually, if anything, Akram, you are very, very far away from perfection. Mm -hmm. So, And she said, um, embrace it. Make that your perfection. Mm. And that always stayed with me. I was probably 21, you know, at university. Right. But that, and that's when things started to change. But to be honest with you, Peter Brook also changed that for me. Little mistakes. I love mistakes. I love things that happen by accident. In the journey of trying to find perfection, there are things that will happen that slip. Mm. And those things that are slip or default be either you embrace it and it becomes who you are or you reject it and you keep lying to yourself. When I watch your work, there's, I mean, you're known for juxtaposing 
the violent abrasive with the poetic and graceful and for me the first time i see you and actually every time i see you it it shocks me there's there's something that happens a rupture in me is that something that you intend is the shock important to to for your audiences to feel that shock when they see your work um i i think more than shock change i want to change people but perhaps that is a sense of shock yeah perhaps that's a sense of being in awe um perhaps that's a sense of um being uncomfortable mm-hmm. depending on what work we're doing right. and if if i want to shock somebody just go and watch the news <laughs> i can't compete with truth or well the news is not truthful but when somebody films a riot or what's happening in the world that is shocking but what i'm interested in is how do we use how do we take that and why do we use it in art and then filter it through art or share it through a poetic way is because perhaps that can create change in the person experiencing it yeah change never happens in comfort you, yeah. that's where the, the rupture needs to happen yeah, yeah. And I I don't know if I told you told you this before about seasons of change. You've talked about it, yeah. I have, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in change. Mm-hmm. Uh, when one sees the work. Um and I I wrote it down people change in four different seasons or four in for four different reasons. Um the first one is people change when they hurt enough that they have to. Can you, can you say that? Again? People change when they hurt enough mm. that they have to change. The second one is um when they see enough people change people change when they see enough that they're inspired to. Mm. Third one is people change when they learn enough that they want to. And the fourth one is people change when they receive enough that they are able to. How how important is it to question what you've been taught? And I, I say this because there's a lot of resistance to questioning the form I'm in, Carnatic music, from those within the community. And you you talk a lot about questioning. You kind of in, you and and T M Krishna have kind of instilled this quality of questioning everything, um, not taking anything for granted. And what what will you say to the people when they feel? you have been unfaithful to unfaithful to the form by questioning it um uh i mean it's it's um kind of ridiculous really when people um get upset that you question it um question the form that you you know um that is holy to many people if you love something you'll question it mm. uh you know i told so many people that story of my mother you know i was creating ride of spring a version of ride of spring in france and my mother i remember mother ma told me so many stories as a child and one of them was um isaac and abraham the story of sacrificing your son because the angel said if you love god he said to the father if you love god to this man if you love god you will prove it by killing your first born son and 
Abraham said, I'll do it. So he took Isaac, the eldest son, I think, and uh, put him on a you know, table or something. And then just at the moment before he slaughtered the son, the angel said, stop. Put a sheep instead. Replace the son. Don't, put, don't kill your son. It was a test. And I remember that haunted me. <laughs> And I, I called my mum up when I was doing Rider Spring. And I said, Ma, I'm doing this piece about sacrifice. Do you remember you told me this story? And she said, I don't remember. And I said, but I remember it because it was quite scary. As a, you know, usually there's a moral to it. So I, moral story. And I said, um, why would you say something like that? And she said, I don't know. I said, because the funny thing was, even though you told me the story, when I asked you, I remember I asked you straight away, Ma, if God asked you to kill me, would you kill me? And she said, no. And I said, hang on, you just told me a story about belief without even seeing, believing in something you cannot see, mm. right? And then straight after that, after teaching me that lesson, you say, well, I won't do it. Mm. And she said, perhaps I wanted to plant a seed of doubt. And I said, why would you want to do that? She said, as a child, I didn't want you to accept Islam without questioning it. I didn't want you to accept anything without questioning it. Because only if you love it, you will question it. Mm. If you don't love it, that means you take it for granted. That's not true love. That's not deep love. That's an idea of love. To love something, you will constantly question it. The fact that we are perpetually questioning and contradicting ourselves is, I would say, closer to who we are. The human condition is full of contradictions and will continue to be. If you love something, you'll question it. I mean, it made a lot of sense to me when I heard it. We so often equate love to blind faith. And I'm so grateful that my mentors constantly challenge that. The questioning spirit is not something that comes naturally to me, to be honest. It's inspiring people around me, starting with my sister, Maiti Lee, TM Krishna, Akram Bhai, Vince, Vincenzo. They have the spirit, and being around them, it was infectious. The pandemic gave me a chance to change who I wanted to be, to try something new. And isolation was born out of this change. It was born out of this questioning spirit. I felt the urge to change, musically and personally, and I knew I needed to interrogate myself and my choices. And now, I truly understand that questioning and interrogating comes from love. When you deeply care for something, you naturally examine it. You look deeply and closely at it. You study it, you invest in it, and with all that time and effort investing in it, you do see the flaws, and you care to resolve and work through those flaws. By working through those flaws, it's never diminishing the love. I realize that it's a deeper expression of love, whether it's a person or it's music. For me, my identity, my search for acceptance, my musical choices, my understanding and relationship to Carnatic music, all of it was up for questioning. It was up for a deep interrogation, a deep cleaning, and I'm so glad because I feel a deeper love for Carnatic music. I feel a deeper love for my identity. And it's not about fusing the West with the East anymore. It's just about being me.
Thank you for listening. This podcast series was produced by Sushma Soma and myself. And this episode features music of mine from recordings from my unreleased archives, creation sessions with Akram Khan, my own practice sessions, and the albums Diaspora Kid and Isolation.